This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Welcome. It's yours. It just depends on how much it means to you. This is a chance of a lifetime. You can't be afraid to go out and compete and do whatever it takes. To the coaches. Cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. Clubhouse. I don't think we have an avenue to say anything anytime. So you're talking to the wrong guy there. I think we're like the mushrooms. Just keep them in the dark and throw the crap on them and hope it grows. Now here's your coach's clubhouse host, Nicole Auerbach. Hey everyone, this is Nicole Auerbach and welcome again inside the Coaches Clubhouse, the podcast where we delve deep into what drives coaches on and off the sidelines. This week, we're talking to Duke head football coach, David Cutcliffe. With a 116 and 108 career record and no national championships or playoff appearances, Coach Cut maybe shouldn't be the household name for football fans, but he is largely because of the respect he demands throughout every level of football and because of his work with quarterbacks. You know the names. Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, Heath Schuler, Daniel Jones. He's also been the man behind one of the great program turnarounds in college football history, steering Duke from a program that, in the 12 seasons before he arrived, finished winless four times under three different coaches. With Cutcliffe, they've been to six bowl games in the last eight seasons, including a trip to the ACC championship game. In this conversation, we talk about how his love of sports developed at a very young age, how he learned from some of the titans of the profession, and how he approached the monumental task of rebuilding Duke. He also gets emotional, retelling a story of the time Peyton Manning rebuilt his career out of Coach Cut's basement. We also get into his other great joy, reading, a passion he inherited from his mother. You'll get some great book recommendations, and we may have started our own book club that you're free to join. Here's my interview with David Cutcliffe. I wanted to start at the beginning and and kind of how you developed your love for football and your love for coaching and when you decided that that was something that you could see yourself doing. Well, mine go does go way back, way back in my youth. I had a pasture next door to me that was a magic pasture. So for sports, it was a 13-inch black and white TV and you'd get the baseball game of the week or the National Football League game of the week and sometimes college football. But as soon as I'd watch, I'd head out to the pasture by myself and I was the best imaginary game player. It was better than any Madden that these kids today have ever seen. So I threw in every stadium in the NFL and I could go get a bat and ball and turn it into Yankee Stadium. I wouldn't go to any other stadium in baseball. So it was totally there for, I'm sorry for all the Red Sox fans out there, but that's, <laughs> that's what it was. And so really sports was, if, if there was a ball involved in that era, I played it and I had a deep love. And like most kids, I dreamed of being a pitcher for the Yankees or a star quarterback in the National Football League. But there was a guy in our state named Coach Paul Bryant. And Coach Bryant was bigger than life for a lot of us. So no matter where I was on Sundays, it came on at four o'clock. And I was generally outside, but my mother would holler at me, Coach Bryant's getting ready to come on. And I would hear that. And I went, that's when I worked on my speed. I mean, I was going to haul it back to the house and uh, listen and hang on every word he said. 
And I think in the back of my mind, I always knew that I would be a coach uh, at 15 amongst my high school teammates on the football team uh, and in the basketball world. That, that was my nickname. So I'm living the dream. I got into it because coaches influenced me so positively. But, uh, yeah, I can't recall not wanting to coach, honestly. I mean, we're talking, you know, maybe my earliest memories these days are five or six years old. But, oh, it was that vivid then. So now walk us through your relationship with and your introduction to Philip Fulmer and kind of how that took you into college football where, you know, obviously you've made quite a mark. Well, I was a happy head high school football coach a bass fishing machine, you know, it's a different lifestyle, you know, in Alabama doing what I thought I would always do because my high high school coaches, I lost my father uh, at 15 to a wreck. And I don't know what I would have done without those, those guys, those men. So I was living that dream. And um, Philip was recruiting for Vanderbilt. Believe that. Okay. So I first got to know him as an assistant coach at, at Vanderbilt. I think maybe he was working for George McIntyre, and he uh, was coming by the school, coming by. Then he, Coach Majors hired him, and they were recruiting people to Tennessee. We had a good team and a lot of good players that went on into Southeastern Conference schools, a little bit of everywhere. He brought Coach Majors by practice, and I think Coach Majors really enjoyed the, the practice maybe more than he thought he was. He overstayed. And then they said to me afterwards that, you know, we'll, we're going to be calling you about a job. Yeah, you okay. And then Philip called me up. He said, you know, we got a position that where you could come up here and help me. Uh, it's a part-time coach. That was the term in that era, which meant full-time work, part-time pay. I took that job because I was single, was an adventure, and uh, turned out to be a good decision. How much money were you making? <laughs> It was under $4,000 a year as this big-time college football coach. The saving grace in that era was the training table was three meals a day. I took advantage of the training table. So I lived a little modest apartment that, honestly, when it got cold, there was as much frost on the inside of the windows as there were the outside of the windows, and that's a true a true story, but um, I was able to survive it as a football coach. Actually, I wasn't there very often. I was at the office. So eventually you get promoted to a full-time position coaching quarterbacks. I'm so curious about how you coach that position because obviously people think of you as a quarterback guru and with that position in particular, if there is a specific way to approach coaching it. I think there is. I'll try not to get too long-winded, but I would first say the only quarterback gurus there are are the men who can play it. It's a whole lot different being the functional part. So my role is... In, in my opinion, number one, it's relationships. That's a one-on-one relationship unlike any other in coaching football. That's a unique relationship. It's one that has to be built completely on trust. If they don't trust you, you can't coach them hard. And what I mean by hard is that they're, I mean, you're going to have to tell them what's not right. And these are highly accomplished people, and they got to trust what you're telling them is truth. The other part of it is, is that you work like a lot of um, 
strategies in, in anything, military or otherwise, are about knowing the enemy. And the opponent dictates a lot of what you do. So my approach has always been, I'm, I'm a pretty good defensive football coach. It was It's helped me as a head coach to be as versed on defense as I have been. So I've really always started very slowly with quarterbacks, established the fact that two things. One, we're going to be able to talk defense, and you're going to understand what I'm saying, and then our terminology is never going to change. When I refer to defensive positions and defensive techniques and defensive blitzes and coverages, that that's the language we're using. And it takes a little while to teach young people that, but when we're in a game, and you're making adjustments. Can you imagine speaking a different language, trying to make adjustments in a game? So it starts there. And then the way you train a quarterback is from the neck up and the neck down. One, not over the other. It's not just what you know up here in your brain. You got to have it, but you got to be so fundamentally good from the neck down that you, in the most heated part of a game, you don't lose your fundamentals. You don't lose your footwork. And so to me, it always starts from the ground up. I call it up to the neck and then the neck up. And I designate what we're doing in a meeting and what we're focusing on. I know I ended up long-winded, but you asked the question, and that's one probably pretty near and dear to me. So so one thing tied to that is obviously like maintaining those relationships with quarterbacks you've coached and through their pro careers. And I know that's something that's been really important to you. How do you go about keeping those relationships going and really making them lifelong and not just for those three or four years that they're on campus with you? I think that's probably any genuine relationship can last if it's based on something that you get out of it either way it doesn't last very long. I think the best relationships are where you want to give to the other. And I believe that. And so I think we've been able to establish that while guys were playing with us. And they know we're not trying to take anything from them. It's about giving to them. And again, it goes back to trust. And to be honest with you, I've always told them, I'm going to coach you whether you like it or not. So I'm going to tell them the truth. And if I see something I don't like on film. And so, you know, the guys that have gone on to the NFL, I watch. And I've already started this, you know, with Daniel, but I certainly did it with all the way back to others. You know, I won't go into all of them, but everybody talks about Peyton and Eli, but he's shooter also, that I would tell them the, the truth. And sometimes they don't get that enough. Sometimes, you know, if you're practicing a mistake, guess what you become? A mistake. And if I see it, I'll even have a phone call from time to time during the season. I don't get to see them live much, but I watch their film. And um, all of us, me included, can let bad habits creep into what we're doing on a daily basis, right? And no different than with a quarterback. But I think it's always been based on, I, I don't want anything from them. I just want them to know that all I can do is tell them what I see, what I think the truth is. And then they they have to take it from there. They're the functional part. One thing that Archie Manning told me last year was that when Peyton was going through the roughest part of his career, he kind of asked him where he needed to be. And he said home and home was referring to Duke and to being there with you. And I'm wondering what it's like to be there for someone, one of the greatest of all time in their sport during those moments and, and really having that relationship beyond sports. That one gets me emotional. I'm down stairs right now in my home and I'm looking 
over here. I know the audience can't see me, but you can right now. I'm looking at Peyton's room, and that's what we refer to it now, even after all of this time, to take a great one and realize you can't throw it across the room, that injury has done what it's done. And you also know that this entire time he's dealing with the dynamics of, am I going to return to the Indianapolis Colts? Do I even need to be doing this? Do I have a future somewhere else? How do I go about making a decision? So it was an everyday work. We, you can't imagine how many times we videoed his motion, tried to get his torso, because I think he's made it widely known that the peck didn't really come back from the nerve damage. And um, I don't know if anybody else could have done it. His willingness to work number one, the hours that went into the physical part of it, then the hours that go into the emotional and mental part of it. You remember, he's away from his family during this time. He doesn't know if he's got an organization. And so it may be, you know, when, when my time on earth ends, I know at some point, if I have time to think, uh, there'll be some thoughts about that part of my life that really have no real parallel as far as football and emotion. That's the most emotion I think I've ever felt. Working over there at night, you know, day job was my Duke football job. At night was Peyton Manning and coming back late, late at night in the car and just talking about it and then watching his progress. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And some of it got documented, probably not well enough. If I would have been a bit smarter, I would have had our video people video everything he did because what he did is next to impossible. But we saw it. We, we did it. I'm now looking over here at he and Demarius right after the game. He sent me a picture and signed it when he broke the touchdown pass record. And there's a guy doing that. It's not full speed, but also know what went into it. So, yeah, that's, that's, I appreciate you asking the question because it was just an important time for me as a coach. It reinforced what coaching is for me, and I don't ever want to forget that. It reminds me of how you've talked about how if you weren't coaching in college, you know, maybe being an elementary school teacher, right? The beginning and the end of that formal education period being so impactful. I want to hit on getting to Duke and, you know, a lot has been made about the situation you inherited and it it was not in a great place and did not have a tradition of winning. Fundamentally, why take the job and how do you go about turning things around? I know there's a whiteboard story in there. Yeah, I mean, there is one that was filled up quickly. I'll get to that. But the reason I think I took it to to begin with is maybe goes back to, to my mother who took any challenge presented to her with amazing determination and confidence. And my mother was still living when we took this, this job and I talked with her about it. And she said, Oh shoot, what an incredible opportunity and da da da. You know, I almost turned around coming over here, but I listened to her. And then it was interesting, and I'll get back to that question, but at least maybe only a year in and two, my mother's still living. I started having people calling me about other jobs. And I called my mother, and she said, did you tell those people that you were going to be at Duke? 
staying at Duke? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, you don't have anything to talk to me about. You know right from wrong. So, you know, and how true is that? So when we came, I did know also I could collect the right people. You can't do something like this by yourself. It's That's what I love about football staffs is that you are a family. We got the family back together. What a beautiful group of people to begin with here. And then it's continued to blossom. But I asked them, let's write down all the reasons we can't win on a board. I never expected them to be that good at it. I'm standing up there and I filled the thing up. I said, okay, well, that's good. Okay. But then I looked at them and I said, you know what? This is awesome. Because now, unlike other people, we know exactly what we've got to work on to be successful. And so some of them were even where I could assign them to different people. Some of them we had to take as a group. And then some of them I had to take on to get where we had to get to. And we did slowly erase those things, check them off and erase them. People ask, you know, what's the most rewarding time at at Duke? How could the script be written better than the last play of the game, a touchdown pass from Sean Renfrey to Jamison Crowder to beat North Carolina to also become bowl eligible? I'm forever grateful to that play. And every day when I get on the elevator at work, when I can get there, the doors open and there's Jamison making that catch, that ball thrown from Sean. I don't ever want that to change because that's a moment that doesn't need to be forgotten. Let's switch gears. The point of this podcast is to also talk about hobbies and outside interests outside of coaching. And I know we've already talked about your mother a lot because she's such an influence on your life. And you've talked about your love of reading and how much you read. And I'm wondering if that comes from her. No question. My mother only went to school through midway through the seventh grade when she came home from school and her mother had had passed away from a stroke and on the floor of their little apartment and Her dad had, you know, kind of taken off uh, multiple times and wasn't there. And so from there, she became an adult. But her lack of education was completely overcome by reading. It amazed me that she even read, maybe people won't know what it is. It's called a Lincoln Library. It was an encyclopedia in one book. And she read it cover to cover. And whatever my mother read, she remembered. So she was a resource for us. Even as a high school student doing a paper, if you were going to do a paper on something, you didn't have to go to the library. You went to Francis, you know. When you see as a child the result of what reading can do, she wrote hard. She told me two things when daddy died. She said, I'm not going to have much time for you, David, but two things will shape the man you'll become. And so I'm going to listen. She said, number one, who you choose to associate with, and number two, what you read. There weren't computers then. Well, that's even more important now that young people have access to a computer. But, well, how right she was. And so I got library here at home, library at work. You've seen it. You've seen my my books. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're precious to me. I mark moments that occur in a book with a sticky note. And so I go back and reread them. And um, that's been a source of strength for me through tough times, Nicole. It's not easy anywhere to get beat. But, you know, there's there's been tough years. You know, I never lost nine games in my life. We've done it twice here. But there's more reason to go back to those books and your belief system. 
how often do you read kind of on a daily, weekly basis even now? And I'm sure maybe it's different in season or out of season. Yeah, it can change during the season, but I'm always going to be reading something. In the morning, I am going to go to the sticky notes. I'm going to pull things out. I need to have a file that I have Xeroxed, for lack of the old-fashioned word, you know, but I've copied pages, and so I'm going to read excerpts. I do like to read books. As soon as recruiting hits, I'm going to keep a book or two with me to read and, and to finish something new. You know, right now, I've had a great opportunity to, to catch up on reading. And you know what I, I find, because my role is is that of, of a mentor, so to speak. It's, it's like it's not an accident. When I pick up something to read it, I find things in there immediately that are going to help our staff or help our team. And it's just a very little bit of effort. And I would think people in general, if they would develop that habit, would be shocked at how they would use that resource in their daily lives. Are you a hardcover, soft cover? Like, are you, have you, do you read on a Kindle ever? Or does it have to be like in your hands? No, I'm a book guy and I mostly like hard covers. I do, you know, if you, if you can only get a soft cover. And sometimes if I'm traveling with it, a soft cover is a lot lighter and easier to pack in my, my backpack. But yeah, I, I can't, how can you beat just getting a book? And when you have to take the flappy cover off, and you got a real book in your hand, it doesn't get much better than that, really. It's a good friend, you know? What would be your Desert Island book? Well, that one would, would come quick to me because I believe it would be Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I, I think that should be required reading for all college students where you're trying to find your purpose, your, your meaning. What is it? So Victor Frankl was a a psychiatrist that was um, imprisoned in a, a Nazi concentration camp. And so much of the book is based there. It's incredible. If you haven't read it, read it. You'll be a better person. So if I'm figuring I'm stuck on a desert island, I better work hard on my meaning at that point in time. It's got to be more than me and a coconut, right? So you've got a lot of grandkids running around, so a lot of different ages. What is the go-to kids book? Well, oh, God, there's so many. You know, my wife was a longtime first grade teacher, and, you know, the kids are all different. But, ooh, I mean, Dr. Seuss is hard to beat. I, I love green eggs and ham. I love hop on pop. But I think maybe if I were stuck with one, oh, the places you can go. Just think about that. How beautiful is that? I don't want young people to ever give up on their dreams. Sometimes reality sets kids back when people remind, well, you're not fast or you're not very smart or you're not, I want to slap the fire out of those people, you know? <laughs> Le leave them alone, all oh, the places they can go, right? Let them go to those places as long as they can. And guess what? A lot of them may end up there. That book also works well as a graduation gift as someone who got one at high school yes. graduation. Still have it. I'm looking at it right now, actually. That's pretty um, awesome, isn't it? And it mm -hmm. means a lot to you, doesn't it? It's an amazing message, really, for all ages. What about leadership books? When you're talking about you know, managing a staff, coaching players, mentoring, there are so many good books out there. What jumps out to you as you know, one of the best? Yeah, you may can help me on the exact title, but I go straight to Coach K. It's either leadership with courage or I'm not sure exactly courageous leadership. I've got the book at work and I'm not there, but 
I didn't know how meaningful that book was going to be to me when I picked it up. And if you want to read something about leadership, tie into that and really read it. Because Coach is West Point trained in years of successful coaching trained without compromising some of the things that we get tempted to compromise. So I think it has great value to all young coaches. What has it been like to share campus with him? Well, I mean, it's been great to watch him conduct a practice. Really great. It's been great to be in meetings together and hear his input. And then just conversation. We don't get as much conversation, I don't think, as either one of us would like because we rarely just are not doing something, you know. But every time I sit down and have a conversation with Mike Krzyzewski, I feel like I'm sitting in a class. Uh, he's the proverbial teacher. It's, it's awesome. It is. And he has said so many things to me. My first meeting here, they weren't, he wasn't on my agenda for my interview, and I, I changed that. I said, I'm not coming over there if I'm not going to talk to the most successful coach you have or ever have had. I need to understand. And so they put him on there for 15 minutes. We talked over an hour. And uh, everything he said, I've put to use from that meeting. The book, I think, is Leading with the Heart. Yeah, heart, yep. Yep. not courage. So thank if, you. Uh... <laughs> I knew you would bail me out, but thank you. <laughs> well, Coach Cut, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate you taking some time and talking about coaching and reading. And basically, we could start a book club now. We've got a couple of recommendations to go. So we might have to do that and hop on the phone and talk about some of these books. Yeah, I think that's the next step, Nicole. And I tell you, you do a great job and your listeners are fortunate to have you out there. You've got a world of experience in a very short time on earth. So appreciate your wisdom. It's, it's rare in someone as young as you are. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That was our interview with David Cutcliffe. Check out all of our episodes on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Nicole Auerbach, and I'll talk to you next time inside the Coaches Clubhouse.